Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar. And uh, I think I say this a lot, but I get more and more excited about healthcare, about clinical work, about doing the stuff, if you would, making meaningful engagements with our patients every time I have one of these conversations for the podcast. Uh, and this one is no, no different. So I'm just going to dive right into it, and then I'll do some housekeeping stuff at the end. But my guest this week is Dr. Larry Benz. He's a physical therapist, and he is the president and co-founder of a company called Confluent Health. And they're basically a, a holding company that partners with outpatient private outpatient physical therapy clinics, occupational therapy clinics, and the like um, across the nation. He is also, uh, and the reason that I wanted to have him on the show here, is he is the author of a book that was published uh, in late 2020 that is called, the book is called Called to Care, um, Making Healthcare Human Again. So if you've listened to any episodes of this show, if you've read any of the work at RehabUPracticeSolutions.com, you know that we are all about that. I loved sitting down with with Dr. Benz, with, with Larry, and having a conversation really about some of the most common uh, patterns, most of the, the, the most common reasons why clinicians might become calcified or might become burnt out in healthcare, and really some practical steps and, and insight that Dr. Benz could provide around how to undo the damage that is done by working in a healthcare system, an industry, if you would, that it seems more focused on numbers and spreadsheets uh, than on people. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Larry Benz from Confluent Health talking about his book called To Care. Hey, Larry, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Pleased to be here. All right. For those that may not know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, PT. That's where you've spent most of your time, right? Absolutely. So I'm sort of uh, always been smitten by all things physical therapy. Um, I'm, the pre- I'm currently the president and co-founder of uh, and CEO of Confluent Health. Confluent Health is a holding company, so nobody's ever heard of us, uh, which <laughs> means that uh, you've probably heard of our subsidiaries or our partnerships. So we have three related businesses. Uh, physical therapy outpatient clinics is by far our largest. We have uh, over, well over 200 locations in about uh, 14 states, all through partnerships. Uh, it's a big private practice. It's a league of nations, if you will. Yeah. Uh, we also have a company called Evidence in Motion, which is primarily in the business of uh, training therapists once they're licensed. So that's residencies, fellowship certification programs, mostly longer term programs. We also partner with universities to do PT schools across the country. So we've got uh, uh, three physical therapy schools going to about seven over the next few years. So it's a very busy company, very, very fast growing company. And then our third company is a company called Fit for Work. So Fit for Work is in the business of work injury management, mostly through prevention 
and about 800 sites, we've got about 150 customers. And those are companies that have, you know, lots of repetitive motion injury, you know, injuries, or they have high musculoskeletal claims in workers' comp. And they hire us to do monitoring of their ergonomics, of coaching, of uh, early intervention of symptoms. And it's a very, very fun business because very outcome-oriented business. So it uh, keeps us very busy. We do that through PTs, OTs, and, and certainly athletic trainers. So those are the three in a nutshell. They're all related. They're all kind of kissing cousins. And <laughs> it's a fast, very entrepreneurial group. Yeah. No, it sounds like y'all have been growing by leaps and bounds, too. <laughs> y'all are just on the growth train. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you recently just wrote a book. I think it got published, what, just in September? right? It did. Call to care. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that book from a high level overview, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the the nitty gritty. Yeah. So like I said, I've always been all things uh, interested in so many aspects of physical therapy. I started my career in the U.S. military. I was a captain in the army and a PT. I went to the U.S. Army Baylor University program. And what I was initially um, intrigued by were so many patients that I'd have in the military. There was a certain faction, you know, we were allowed to order x-rays and prescribe medications in the, in the military. There was a, sort of this subset of patients that once you told them that their x-ray was normal, they would just kind of leave even if a limp and they were sort of miraculously better. Then there was another subset of, of patients that regardless of what uh, you did with them, if they had a poor relationship with their supervisor or their battalion commander or their company commander, they had a harder time going back. And around that same time, you know, Boeing had some research that said, if you called a injured worker within a few days uh, of their injury and said, look, you know, we, we miss you, we care, you, care about you, uh, we want you back at work, that that had an incredible impact on the outcome of care, regardless of what I did in the clinic. And so it occurred to me that now what we call the therapeutic alliance, which is kind of a fancy academic term, um, back then we called it non-clinical factors of clinical success. What were the psychosocial factors that mattered? What were the bedside manner things that mattered? What were all these things? Did they have a role in clinical outcome? And so that took me on a journey over a many year period as I kept sort of documenting these non-clinical factors of clinical success. also around the same time, we started to learn that, you know, the biological approach to treating pain isn't always the right way to go, that you need to take on sort of the biopsychosocial aspect of it. And I was interested in positive psychology and transportable concepts that we can take into PT and in healthcare that were in the literature that we may or may not have known about it. So that took me uh, back to school at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, sort of a long distance program, a weekend uh, every three weeks for about a year. Um, and learned under the giants of positive psychology, Marty Seligman, Angie Duckworth, uh, all those folks who really, um, my intent was to learn how healthcare can be enhanced through positive psychology. And so there's just enormous amount of research and I distilled them to about 10 or 12 different items that could be easily translated and transported. So we started uh, teaching PTs about it very early, everything from empathy to broaden and build to high quality connections to empathetic listening. Um, and really to document whether it had an outcome effect and it had a huge outcome effect. Uh, Not only did we find that it had an outcome effect though, it also helped the therapist. So these techniques, if you will, uh, emotional intelligence, managing yourself and others, high quality connections, it actually enhanced the physical therapist's job. It made them sort of rehumanize their efforts with the patient as well as was an antidote to either burnout or dehumanization. And then lastly, what we found out is it made us a better organization 
And it was good for business. You know, at the end of the day, I'm an entrepreneur. I own and operate PT clinics. And um, it had an economic return for us as well. So the combination of a better clinical outcome, a better enhanced experience for our therapists, and a value proposition or a competitive advantage in the marketplace uh, really was a good thing. So that's it at a high level. And uh, we've published the research as well as there's been additional research conducted at other universities on everything from empathy to high quality connections to broaden and build a capitalization, setting the right kind of goals, all these things, self-efficacy and the like. And really what I wanted to do was from my capstone or thesis at University of Pennsylvania, I wanted to take that material and at some point put it not only into a course, which we've had since 2013, an online course entitled College Care, but I wanted to also put it in a book just to have uh, multi, multiple media out, out way outlets to be able to do that. So we published the book, 100% of the proceeds from the book go to various charitable efforts within the physical therapy profession from the foundation for physical therapy to healthcare disparities, minority scholarships and the like. So we've had a lot of success, a lot of fun with that as well. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think hearing you talk, it's like you're ticking all the boxes. So one of our big foundational pieces here at Rehab U and we work with our clients and we talk to, to students or other patients is all about biopsychosocial approach. We're going to take a biopsychosocial approach. And I think you were getting into it. You know, I, I come from the, not the military, but I treated veterans for a while at the VA and it's the same basic principle, right? Like you've Absolutely. got patients that were coming in with, with quote unquote pain, but negative x-rays and they're being told by their doctors, well, there's nothing wrong with you, but they're still experiencing pain. And how do we, so diving into that is super, super, super exciting. And in your, in one of the articles that I read that you published, that's an excerpt from your book, you were talking about um, part of being in the military and getting through that healthcare system and being through, uh, you know, growing efficiencies basically, and how this drive for efficiencies has been kind of put on the pedestal by maybe healthcare consultants or whoever's running the show, right? Like it's going to make healthcare cheaper, more efficient, higher quality. But what you're, what you found is that it actually consumes time from clinicians, right? Like, so PTs in general or OTs or whoever's hands-on patients are spending a higher percentage of their time doing administrative tasks, correct? Yeah. So it's very interesting, regardless of whether you're a nurse, a physician, a physical or occupational therapist, we do everything in school to teach you how to care for patients. And that's why people are driven to the profession. They are very service oriented. They want to practice their craft. Then once you're in the profession, after you get out of school, your internships, we do everything to get you out of your craft by <laughs> making you do way more paperwork, making you get more pre-approvals and certifications and verifications and plans of care and all these process improvement measures that do absolutely nothing for the healthcare system, except they're negative. They take away a, the zest you have for caring for your patients. They take away the time that you have to care for your patients, and they lead to provider burnout. 51% of physicians, according to the foundation survey, not only are headed towards burnout, but they won't recommend the profession to their loved ones. Um, and people are generally disgusted with our healthcare system because of all these systematic things uh, that in essence have made it worse, not better. So the unintended consequences of government regulations and for hoops and ladders that all kinds of insurance companies make us jump and go through is that it's gotten worse for the patients who need the care. It's led to less care and providers are disgusted with it. So not a good yeah. cascade effect. Yeah. And what's the, what do you think the main driver is for all of that? Like increasing this regulatory burden or increasing the administrative burden on like 
front level staff or patient facing clinicians? Yeah, so, you know, like any profession, there's good and bad in it. I think what happens is you find somebody who is an out and out fraud doing fraudulent things like misbilling patients, purposeful, intentful, you know, crime. They then assume everybody else is in that same boat and they punish everybody else by somebody's willful intent to deceive or fraud. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think in the CMS or Medicare, they were scared of the growth of PT, which they ought to be uh, embracing because for every dollar you spend in PT, you're going to spend downstream and concurrent costs in pharmacy, radiology, and surgery. Um, so I think part of it was growth. And then insurance companies have a, have a, you know, disincentive. They have a conflict of interest in paying out claims. It means they make less money. So if you really look at who is controlling a lot of the power in the U.S. right now, it's U.S. pharma companies and it's U.S. insurance companies. It's not technology companies like we used to think. It's really more the centralization of power in those companies because at the end of the day, they have a financial incentive to really, um, you know, make providers go do more work and uh, not, not actually care for their for their uh, beneficiaries. So at the end of the day, we have all these things happen, but not enough care in healthcare. Yeah. And like you said, it's almost set up that way when you have the, the large external stakeholders incentivize in one way or another, they were, they're not going to come out and say it, but that's what they're doing. They don't want to spend money on healthcare, right? Exactly right. Yeah. All righty. So in, in that same article, you were talking about um, there's huge societal change, there's pressure on, on healthcare executives to you know, figure out what's going on, to either to adapt, bring in new technologies, but still ultimately we're trying to get to a point of greater efficiency to reduce cost, manage greater transparencies. And I think you touched on it a little bit, but there's this fear that this ancillary healthcare spend, if you would, is getting so big, but you're saying that let's say we spend money on PT, on OT, on some of these ancillary you know, wellness and preventative measures, we're spending less down the line. So is there a breakdown in... Um, maybe communicating that to the, those larger regulatory stakeholders or, or what seems to be the disconnect between seeing that in the research and then not seeing it you know, play out in policy? Yeah, so we have plenty of data and plenty of studies. What we don't have is the right pathway of care and the right policies. So I can show you a number of studies, some that were as released as early as last week, that show you early access and direct access to a physical therapist saves a lot of money in MRI costs for low back pain, surgeries, and the like. So we have plenty of that type of uh, information, but unfortunately, it hasn't uh, transported into the healthcare dollar. What insurance companies tend to do is they tend to look at silos or buckets of cost, pharmacy, hospital, physician, PT, all of those things are in these buckets, but they never see that it's really not a zero sum game. That if I spend more money in prevention and upstream items, if I spend more money in allowing a patient to directly go down a pathway where they actually get hands-on care, that that will save money concurrently in x-ray, pharma, surgery and the like. And so what we have to be able to demonstrate to them now a little bit is through pilot studies and other other mechanisms that there's a net savings by enhancing PT. Our company is involved in a two-state project right now with Anthem where if you are a low back pain patient in Indiana or Kentucky and you access our clinics, you have zero copay for the first five visits. Oh, wow. And so we are demonstrating to them 
and they pay us fine for those visits. We're not taking a hit on what the reimbursement level is to us. But what they're finding, of course, is that that is going to save a lot of surgeries. It only takes saving a few spine surgeries to save a lot of money. You, know, yeah. you can buy a lot of PT for the cost of an MRI, and you can buy a whole lot of PT for the cost of a surgery on your spine. So these are the types of pilots that need to be highlighted, deployed, and, and, and sent around. You know, Optum released a lot of data on direct access for PT and found that they had all kinds of uh, savings as well. In a self-insured market, you know, you got to keep in mind today, it's 70 to 80% of the markets are self-funded or self-insured. In our company, we're self-insured. And if you get an ache of pain, a sprain or a strain, you go to PT without any cost um, or copay or without any copay, I, I should say. If you access an ER or an urgent care or a neurosurgeon for your first visit or even a primary care surgeon, you're going to pay a lot more. And so you have to incentivize folks both through financial means, but more importantly, through pathway means by creating an awareness that, you know, that your PT is at their disposal for those types of care. Yeah. So it, it's almost like a two-pronged approach. You've got to show the data, you've got to show the stakeholders, and at the same time, you've got to create sort of that, like you said, the pathway for a patient that might not care one way or another, they're just in pain and they want to get help for it. <laughs> you got to incentivize them to take the right one, right? Or the least oh, that's, costly that's one. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the, the concern right now is that, you know, I certainly embrace technology. Uh, we use a lot of very progressive technology in our company from, you know, data stacks to um, uh, virtual reality, lots of, lots of mechanisms, lots of delivery mechanisms. But at the end of the day, we have to be very careful about that because on telehealth, if you lose a high quality connection, um, you're really going to contribute to a worse outcome. So you have to be extremely sensitive to body posture, facial expressions, tone and voice, all the things that we need to to maintain a good quality connection. We can't literally replace physical therapy with telehealth, but we can use it as an adjunctive delivery yeah. system to help in monitoring, perhaps in triage, uh, instruction. Um, but let's not be naive enough to think that it's a replacement. If we are, if we believe that it's a replacement, what you're going to see is the med risks of the world, the yep. optims of the world say, oh, you don't need to go to PT. You can do the, You can do it all over FaceTime. And that would be really, really bad for a profession, be bad for the system of healthcare in general, and most importantly, be bad for patients. Yeah. And when you're saying connection, just to clarify, you're talking about the human connection between patients and providers, right? Not the internet connection. Well, I mean, uh, I guess the, yeah, the internet the, connection can affect that if it's choppy, right? That's right. No, it's a, it's a high quality connection, which is a combination of, you know, mutuality and vitality and energy around the relationship. It's being able to connect with another individual at a base level, um, you know, not in a powerful way where you lose empathy and the other kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, it's really one of the hallmarks of, of healthcare. You know, you can take healthcare back, many, many years as you want. And it's always been the relationship uh, between a patient and their caregiver. And we have to remember that. And while we can disrupt it with telehealth and other delivery systems, we can't replace the whole notion that you still have to have that connection. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I wrote it right at the beginning of the COVID crisis where people were moving into telehealth that was one of the big areas i was hearing people say things like oh yeah you know we could we could replace in-person pt in general with with telehealth and i was like whoa wait wait a minute wait a minute like let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right <laughs> that's exactly right yeah yeah. And if you notice the numbers, the data would show you since we've sort of, you know, um, level set everything to six foot distancing, sanitation, masks and the like, that uh, the number of telehealth visits and PT has gone down you know, precipitously. Yeah. Well, and I think 
one of the values in in telehealth, and I was saying this to people before, like the value in telehealth is not so much that it can replace PT, but that it's it's a quick and easy way to get access to somebody. You know, you're seeing somebody for low back pain in the clinic, and then they have a a problem or a question, or they need maybe just a tune up on their on their exercise or whatever, some refresh instruction, and it's very easy, very quick. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time doing it. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you there. I think we need to we need to be prioritizing that in person, interpersonal interactions between clinicians and, and clients for sure. No doubt. Yeah. So let's talk then about what happens when clinicians are put in this situation or the current environment where we find ourselves, right? So they're, they're being pressed for productivity, for utilization. They're doing a lot of administrative burden. And you talk about, I actually like the, the analogy that you got here going on of the, this calcification, right? Like people become or clinicians become, uh, at the VA, I call them apathetic, but maybe it's, maybe it's something similar, right? Where like they don't, they don't give patients the amount of patience that they need, right? Yep. No, that's very good. So there's, there are really two, I think, teaching points out of all of this. Uh, so let's talk about them in their extreme. So burnout is almost like a clinical diagnosis. It's the long-term effects of dehumanization. And it's when you've lost zest for your career, your energy around the field that you practice, whether it's healthcare or not. It's where you feel you can no longer make a difference by what you do, and you literally receive no joy from it. So burnout has an antidote, and we'll get to that, but that is more of a profound effect over a longer period of time. That's much different than what I refer to as calcification, which calcification is literally the combination of fatigue, doing things over and over again, and the preponderance of as the day wears on and everything that goes with us. So you're in your sixth or seventh patient, And what you start to do is you start to look at a three-dimensional human being and make them into two dimensions. And that is referred to as dehumanization because you no longer really think of them as Mrs. Jones. You think of it as the knee patient. Um, And that's natural. That's human. We all do that. And so what is the antidote? What can you do for that? Which is to take a some type of break that brain hacks you back into rehumanization making sure that you can relate to them in a three-dimensional way. For some people, that's a cup of coffee. For others, it's listening to music or breathing or meditation or saying a prayer, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, recognize the symptoms of it and then take action for it. Uh, Because at the end of the day, you want to maintain that three-dimensional relationship with your patient, that they're very real, that their truth and their perspective is to be respected and honored, whether or not you agree with it or not. Um, Share emotion and experience that you've had that's very similar to them. Do it in a a manner that is more non-judgmental. And then be concerned. You know, that's where the compassion comes in, the pro-social concern. See, as PTs, we're very, very good at pro-social concern. That's why we went in. We want to help. We want to do things. We want to get better. But we have to maintain the other components of empathy as well, not judgment, perspective taking, or what is known as uh, the cognitive aspect of empathy, or the shared emotion or the affective part of it. Um, So that's the whole idea behind calcification, decalcification, or humanization, dehumanization. Burnout... um, the long-term antidote for it is also empathy, but it'll take a while to get you there. So that's about remembering why you were called to become a PT physician or whatever you were called to do. Looking at those thank you notes, looking at the pictures, uh, looking at your original PT school application of what drove you into the profession. So you literally have to go through a renewal 
um, and a reminder. We call in our company Remind, R-E colon M-I-N-D, where we every month are sending vignettes, stories. And really the, the whole notion of what you do is incredible. You've just taken a patient who was walking in limping to now running a 10K. And unless you're reminded about that, you habituate it. You know, one of the psychological things that happens to us as human beings is called adaptation or habituation. We yeah. do things so much that we forget how good they are. And that's not a good thing. So the only way to hack your brain from that is to be reminded of it. So burnout is in part a remind. Burnout is in part uh, an antidote of taking that muscle of empathy and retraining for it, whether it's uh, going back and listening to some humanities, literature, film, art, whatever your thing is, um, and, and, and tricking you back into why you were called to do those things to begin with. But it's not an easy process. And it's almost a behavioral health issue, frankly. Um, and by the way, behavioral health has done very, very well with telehealth. It's probably in a COVID environment. One of the oh, yeah. biggest, hugest concerns we have is you know, anxiety, fear, depression, whatever. And um, it lends itself well. So we really think that uh, our chronic pain patients, for example, we're going to have to virtualize part of their treatment with behavioral health. We use a little bit of VR for that, but it's also about um, accessing, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and other kinds of things that patients can access to help them in, in during these times. Because in a post-COVID environment, the number of patients are going to be spellbinding. The amount of PT that's going to be necessary is, is just incredible. So we got to be ready for it. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point you bring up about behavioral health. So I used to consult for Georgia's Department of Behavioral Health. And when COVID kicked off, we actually set up their telehealth clinical guidelines and operational guidelines. And it was so effective for them that going forward, they're like, hey, even after social distancing, we're going to bring part of the care virtual anyways, because from a cost efficiency standpoint, but then also from a access to care standpoint, it's great. And I think, like you said, our chronic pain patients really do at some point, and I, I know you, you're, you run EIM, so I know you're with Adrian Lowe and his therapeutic pain specialists and all that kind of stuff. So you're probably on board with this too, like the idea that we put our hands on patients and they get better is kind of flawed, especially with, with patients with chronic pain. And sometimes what they need is more of that behavioral health, right? There is no question about it. Um, you have to have a combination of all the biopsychosocial things. So you have yeah. to be able to teach patients about pain, uh, coping mechanisms, how to identify triggers, unhinging activity from pain. Um, you know, the more I do things doesn't necessarily cause damage to what you're doing, all those kind of uh, basic stuff. And as you all know, most patients have never really had a good explanation of why they hurt to begin with. Um, so you do have to, and then you have to really um, look at some cognitive behavioral approaches, as well as mindfulness, breathing, sleep, other types of areas, um, and really understand that the treatment of chronic pain now in today's environment is more about um, decreasing healthcare utilization increasing activity level and enhancement, understanding the cognitive approaches of dealing with their pain, um, less ER visits and all the kind of economic things that you want, and certainly decrease fair anxiety, uh, you know, as well. So that's the modern day treatment, you know, call it uh, therapeutic pain specialist, pain neuroscience education. There's a lots of combining pain science content that is all affirming one another. Um, and we're going to be loaded with those kind of patients uh, in, a, in a current COVID, but particularly post-COVID environment. You know, there's 50 to 60 million Americans with chronic pain. It's going to yeah. be way more uh, as we continue to fight through, you know, this nasty virus. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and some of the some of the work you were talking about with positivity and stuff, it it applies not just to patients, it applies to clinicians too, right? Like in your book, you say positivity is a learned skill that pays off not only in your own life, but also in the lives of everyone who comes into contact with you, right? So what do you do from a administrative standpoint, you run, you've run to on a clinic, so you're managing them. So what do you do with your clinicians to keep them positive, keep them engaged, so that that kind of rubs off on their patients? Yeah, it's a fair question. So I think the one thing to keep in mind is we really take the position that these cognitive skills, so-called soft skills, uh-huh. are critically important and so important that we feel it's our responsibility to level set every therapist in our organization in them. So they all go through call-to-care training. They all go through emotional intelligence training so that they can learn how to manage themselves and their relationships, that they can learn about biases and how to you know, fend them off, not, not, not fight them and argue with them, but to realize that you have them and deal with them. So we have to, you have to train for them. But the other thing that I teach our therapists is that these cognitive skills are actually harder to learn um, than manual therapy skills. Yeah. And they, so you have to approach it very similar. You have to teach it. You have to live it. You have to monitor it. You have to reward for it. You have to recognize it. And you have to re-engineer it and hold people accountable to them. Oh, so we use a third-party survey called Compassion Relational Empathy Questionnaire. CARE it's, it's developed in Scotland. It's a validated instrument. really helps to measure you know, how empathetic and how uh, you know, around all these positive psychology principles, including positivity, um, how, how therapists use those in their clinical environment. So uh, we, we measure them on that uh, basis. Um, I think the other part of it is, as you realize, is as you teach therapists about everything from gratitude to broaden and build and capitalizing on conversations, it enhances their well-being and flourishing as an individual therapist as well. So it really is a bi-directional approach, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. And again, I think it helps set you up for a value differentiation in the marketplace. Yeah. So, and <laughs> that leads into like the whole idea that positive patient or positive clinicians that are engaged and excited about their work, that in and of itself is a competitive advantage in the marketplace, right? <laughs> there's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. And when I say positive, you know, you're also not being Pollyanna. I mean, you're being yeah, realistic. Yeah. You're dealing with things very object, objectively, but you're also, you know, lending, lending encouragement, you know, Patients come to see us because they want help, not hell. And, and, and encouragement and hands-on approach and high-quality connections is what really differentiates us as a profession. You know, I, I really uh, believe in sort of this checklist approach. A patient needs to leave having felt cared for, appreciated, thanked, and um, in a friendly environment. If you just do those things, you're going to have dramatic impact on the patient, regardless of how skilled you are in a grade five manual therapy approach. So it really does um, go to the whole notion that's the combination of your clinical hands-on skills and the cognitive skills that you relate to your patient. That's what keeps them coming back. I mean, you could build a practice around friends, family, and former patients who, you know, at, at scale, at maturity, it's could represent as much as a third of your patients every day. That's a good thing. And so that contagion or what we call billboard effect, network effect, word of mouth, whatever you want to call it, is also a practice builder. And if you do it in an authentic way, because you really can't fake empathy, um, if you do it in an authentic way, you're going to be able to build your practice through caring, which is what we wanted to do when we entered the present in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that speaks to the whole point. Like there's research 
all over the place. Like, you know, 30% of patients won't show up to their second visit in PT or 70% of patients won't complete their course of care. And I wonder how much of that drop-off that we see in patients is because they, they walk away from an encounter with a clinician thinking they're just running me through the same exercises as everybody else, or they don't really care about me. I'm just a number on a, on a checklist for them and not failing to make that human connection, right? That's right. And we replace that with, you know, working on our computer right in front of a patient, yeah. not paying attention to them. And there's ways to handle that. You know, there's all kinds of behavioral uh, modifications you can make that allow you to document on time, be productive, um, and, and everything else. I mean, you know, incorporating cognitive skills does not mean you have to take two hours with every patient. It just yes. means you have to have a thoughtful, measured approach with every patient. You know, we can't fight a system that says Blue Cross only pays X amount or United pays X amount. You know, we have choices to make on whether we accept those contracts or not. And so you have to have a business model that allows you to do that. But that's not an either or. So it's not a mutually exclusive decision to have an authentic, kind, compassionate, positive approach to patient care versus having a business mindset. We built the whole company around it. And, um, you know, are continuing to have success. And the way you measure success is, are you growing? Are your therapists engaged? Are you attracting therapists to your organization? And um, are you giving them opportunities for growth, maturity, leadership, training? You know, those are all good things. And that's really, to me, um, the financial success is all secondary. That's all a result of all doing everything else well. So we really, really believe that those are drivers for a, a clinical practice. Yeah, no, and I love that you're talking about that. It's we have a couple entrepreneurs that come that have come on the show, and it's nice to get that that view of healthcare because a lot of times you get folks that are, I mean, for lack of a for lack of a better context, they just don't they don't see the point in money, or they don't want to think it's about money. But at the same time, like we're in we own businesses because we want to provide for our families, right? Like we need right. to make money. So that whole what you just said, like it's our choice whether or not we accept those contracts that can seem very scary to a, maybe a new entrepreneur, a clinician that maybe owns one or two small little practices. Like I'm going to take away and, and not accept Cigna or Blue Cross Blue Shield or Anthem or whatever can be very scary if they're not, if it's not a good business decision, but they feel like they need to be in network. What do you say to, to clinicians in that kind of circumstance? Oh, it's absolutely true. So, you know, I take the position that it's very difficult to become a licensed physical therapist. You've had to apply to PT school. That's not easy. You've had to get through PT school. You've had to get through the rigor of the training and the testing and everything that goes with it. And so I think PTs have natural skill sets that transport themselves very well for business and entrepreneur. Um, unfortunately, what you see in the marketplace, you know, I've been around a long time and my first enemies, if you will, when I entered private practice, were other PTs, ironically enough, who weren't in private practice, who automatically assumed you were only doing it for the money or only doing it for the economic benefit. And the reality is, if you look at private practices, they have a higher percentage of board certified, you know, PTs, they have a higher percentage of people who are involved and engaged in their community, they have a higher percentage of giving back philanthropically, you know, yeah. so, you know, look at the data, look at the objective parts of it. I think the other thing we do is we give credence to people just because they have a lot of Twitter followers or a lot of likes on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting that we teach our therapists all about evidence and all about data and, and, and interpreting research and, and, and clinical decision making and critical thinking skills. Then they automatically, for whatever reason, forget all of those things and ascribe credibility to various resources, whether it be, you know, uh, Twitter folks or whatever. 
And they never go back and say, what has that person been successful at? Show me about their organization. How many board certified therapists have they made? How many therapists have they made as owners of private practice? How many locations do they have? Are they growing their therapists? Why do people want to come to work for them? And so we have to really start applying critical thinking skills to all aspects of our lives. And as a physical therapist, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, doesn't matter, but we should be applying those same things to you know other aspects of what we do in the clinical care and outside of the clinical care. As I like to say, we have all of these external factors and just not enough care. Um, I think the healthcare system can be pivoted over time if we go back and re re-energize. I think COVID, for example, you know, medical school applications are up 17%. Healthcare heroes are very recognized. That's a very, very good thing. Yeah. But but let's also not forget, you know, after 911, early responders and police and firemen were also uh, heroes. And now they're being vilified, and unfortunately, in the media in many ways, which is very unfortunate. And my caution on that is we're healthcare heroes now. Let's keep us healthcare heroes by doing the right things. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's so true. We don't want to be in, in five or 10 years talking about those dirty, greedy physical therapists that are ripping people off, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We'd rather talk about the insurance companies who are dirty and greedy and ripping yeah. people off. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, Larry, thanks so much for taking the time. If you could just give one or two big takeaways that you'd want a listener to walk away from the show with, what would they be? I'd say the first one is keep in mind that cognitive skills, the so-called soft skills, are every bit as important as the hard skills that we teach in PT yes. school. Um, number two, I would say differentiate between empathy and understand that it's a multi-directional or multi-construct, uh, dimensional construct, and it has you know three or four definitions to it. Uh, I think that the other part is, is that PTs don't think we have empathy just because we have a, a concern for getting people better. It goes well beyond that. And I think the other part of it is just to understand that it's normal to calcify or dehumanize, kickstart your way back out of that. And, um, you know, again, you could, by adopting this, these types of mentalities, you can really differentiate yourself and make it and re invigorate your own career and your own calling. We have hundreds of PTs that take the pain neuroscience education course, for example, and they say, man, this is what I really needed. This is a course I've been looking for. We have the same numbers who take call to care in all of the transportable positive psychology constructs that are in healthcare and are doing the same thing. So uh, just to encourage them to uh, consider reading the book and, and sharing it with their friends and colleagues. There's no profit motive here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people find you if they want to connect, if they want to see what you're up to? So I'm at physical therapy on Twitter. Um, I'm not a huge Instagram user. Uh, I'm not a huge Facebook user. Um, and uh, certainly Larry at physical therapist is my email. I always give it out because I own the domain physicaltherapist.com and uh, called to care the book.com called to care the book.com. And lastly, go confluent.com go confluent.com. All righty. And we'll link to all those in the show notes. Thanks very much, man. Have a good day. Perfect. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Larry Benz from Confluent Health, uh, talking about Call to Care, his book, and talking really about some of the principles of positive psychology, of how human connection can really mean the difference sometimes for patients between whether or not they get better or whether or not they drag on in their dysfunction, if in their pain. I think one of the big takeaways for me as I listened to this interview again and as I recall the book, so I bought this book about the time that I was closing on a 
private practice that I purchased here in my home city of Augusta, Georgia, home of the National, the Augusta Nationals, if you're into golf. I'm not, but you know some people are. Um, and I was coming into purchasing this clinic and becoming a clinician again, a boots-on-the-ground clinician, if you would, after having spent the last you know, four years or so uh, in between academics and healthcare consulting and doing marketing and, and some big strategic initiatives for some very big projects. And I had always in the back of my mind wanted to go back into private practice, into, into just making relationships with patients again, because that's why I got into healthcare. But I was a little bit disillusioned after being in and out of some of these organizations, after doing patient engagement work with clients, and just feeling this drag on the clinicians that I spoke to, the managers, the clinic directors that I worked with around just the, the burden that is productivity and utilization and efficiency and how the numbers have really taken place of people. And I was kind of hesitant about stepping back into this, not just from a having to work in it standpoint, having to be a clinician now kind of in the rat race of, of utilization and productivity, but being somebody that was going to be in charge of setting the culture at a clinic. And I was, I was worried about how it would look and whether or not, um, whether or not I'd be stuck, do, you know, falling in line and doing what everyone else does and pushing, pushing some of these metrics over people and reading the book. So I bought it uh, shortly after it was published shortly after I had already signed the papers to close on this clinic, and I was kind of hesitant about it, a little bit in the back of my mind about stepping back into clinical care, and reading the book just re-energized me about our role as clinicians, about the impact that we have on our patients' lives. I was talking to a colleague from the university about the time I was stepping away, about the time I was leaving to go close on this clinic, and, uh, and she said, oh yeah, that book was on my to-read list. I wonder if it's any good, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm reading it right now and it is making it is making me fall in love with clinical care again and I cannot thank Larry enough for taking the time to be uh, be with us for for an hour or so to chat about his book but also to to share some of the insights and some of the practical advice that he he gave throughout the throughout the interview about what we can do as clinicians to build empathy to build trust to to decalcify and notice when we are feeling you know, on the edge of burnout. So, um, he's, he's done a lot for, for the profession, for clinicians in general, and we just want to thank him for that. Anyways, um, if you like what we're doing here at the show, if you like the podcast, head on over to iTunes, give us a rating and review. It helps people find us. Um, if you, if you want to get new episodes sent straight to your inbox, you can head on over to uh, rehabupracticesolutions.com slash podcast, or you can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show. Either one of those will take you to the same page. You can sign up and we'll shoot you over new episodes whenever we drop them. It's usually every other week, every now and then you'll get a bonus interview. Um, but that's, that's basically it. So until the next time, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients. 
helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.